You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. You haven't been with us. For a good part of the summer, we have been getting behind the full meaning of biblical words by considering them in their original language of Hebrew or Greek. And not just any biblical words, but certain key words that come up again and again. To date, if you haven't been with us, we've explored the richness and nuance of biblical themes like listening, Lord, love, the heart, the soul, strength, hope, and joy. And our focal text, for the most part, for doing that work, for finding those words, has been Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, a foundational teaching and prayer that's known as the Shema. And again, as an aside, the Shema is the first word of that text, that prayer, and it actually means listing. It's where we started. The last word that we're going to be looking at in this series today is not found in the Shema. It comes from Jesus quoting the Shema in the Gospel of Luke. It's a word that, based upon the reaction of his original audience, required some additional explanation. And so Jesus, like he often did, tells a story. And it's a story I guarantee you've heard. But we're going to listen to it again anyway, because it's one of those stories, no matter how many times you've heard it, that still has much to teach us, much to ask us about our own life and practices as the church about our own life and practices as followers of Jesus in this world. So you've got your Bibles open, I hope, to Luke chapter 10. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 709. And if you don't have a Bible, that Pew Bible is yours to take with you. It's also available on the YouVersion Bible app on your tablet or phone. It'll take you right there if you follow those instructions. But listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It reads, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return... 
I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You heard it. Jesus is asked a question by a lawyer, an expert, a teacher in the Mosaic law, the law handed down from God through Moses to the people. And the question is this. It's a standard question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to embrace, to receive the promises of God for his people? We read Luke's encounter, version of this encounter, but in Matthew's version, it's interesting, he remembers it differently. He remembers the lawyer's question as being put this way. Jesus, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And it's important, I'm bringing this up because if you put these two accounts together of the same incident, we pick up on something we might otherwise miss. This lawyer isn't asking about a particular commandment per se, right? Which one is the best? That's not really what he's asking. He's asking what kind of commandment is great. In other words, this lawyer is asking for the central core of all the commandments, the defining principle in the midst of Yahweh's instructions for how we are to live. What's it all about, Jesus? What does it all come down to? And that's a great question, but I hope you caught this. This is no innocent inquiry because Luke tells us in a brief aside, the lawyer who asked it was intending to set a trap for Jesus. You see, the lawyer already knew the answer to the question. The lawyer already knew the answer to the question, and Luke shows us this by having him actually answer it. Every observant Jew already knew the answer to this question. The answer is the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 8. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first scripture, as we've talked about. Every Jewish child is still taught to memorize, much like we memorize the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer repeated at least twice daily by a faithful Jew. Now, depending upon whose version of the story you read, either Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer, how do you read the law? In other words, what would you say the answer is? That's Luke's reporting of these events. Or according to Matthew, Jesus just answers the question himself. Either way, the answer given is the expected one. It's the Shema. What's unexpected, however, is how the Shema is fused with a single command from Leviticus 19.18. One lone verse from a completely different biblical passage is elevated as being of equal importance as the Shema, the foundational faith declaration of Israel, and then it becomes, in this happening, one of the most famous lines in all the Bible. You know it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's only Luke. Matthew doesn't do this. It's only Luke who shares with us the follow-up question to this answer. Without missing a beat, the lawyer then asks, but who is my neighbor? You see, and this is where things get interesting. This is where things get interesting because by the time of Christ, this seemingly straightforward command, surprisingly, by the way, found only one time in the whole Old Testament. Did you know that? Love your neighbor as yourself is found only one time in the entirety of the Old Testament, only found in Leviticus. 
But this seemingly straightforward command that's only mentioned one time by the time of Jesus has become subject to different interpretations, different understandings of what a neighbor is. The Hebrew word for neighbor, and you'll see it come up on the screen in just a moment, is reah. Can you say reah? Reah. Reah is the Hebrew word for neighbor. And as I've mentioned, if you look through the Old Testament, it has a variety of meanings. We're going to briefly sample what some of those are. Reah, which means neighbor. The first occurrence of this word, reah, is in the book of Genesis, in the story of the Tower of Babel. You might remember that story, the story that explains the origin, origins of all the different nations and all the different languages in the world. And in that story, it reads, And they said each to his reah, Come, let us make bricks. Here, reah refers to an unspecified other. Reah, here, they spoke to each to his reah. They each spoke to his fe- their fellow man or woman. Their fellow man or woman. Let's make bricks. Here, neighbor refers only to members of one's own group because, you've got to remember this, at this point in the story, all humans are still members of a single group. It's what happens after Babel that changes that, Right? After Babel, when humanity becomes all spread out over the earth and divided, separated by various languages, the translation of rea, neighbor, becomes even more pronounced as meaning a member of one's tribe or a member of one's own group. Consider in the book of Exodus, for example. In the book of Exodus, when Moses, you might remember this little little scene, Moses intervenes between two Hebrews who are fighting. Remember this, where they're fighting and Moses gets in the middle of them and he says to the one, that, one at fault, why do you strike your reah? Here the usage of neighbor clearly refers to another Jew, to someone within the community of Israel. Jump ahead to the book of Job and reah carries an even more intimate connection. Okay, In Job, when word gets out about all the evil, all the bad stuff that happened to Job, we're told his three rea came from afar, each from his own place. Notice, rea in this context is understood to mean three people to whom Job was relationally close to. That is, three friends. Three friends. Three companions Job knew and relied upon. Now, as the later rabbinic tradition And that's the the rabbis who come after these scriptures were given. They continue to interpret the Old Testament, the Torah. This understanding of neighbor as referring to a friend rather than a perfect stranger continued. In fact, some rabbis even took the designation of rea, of neighbor, a bit further by arguing to be a true friend and therefore a neighbor, the other person ought to be virtuous, meaning they share your beliefs, they share your morals and your values. Now, other rabbis countered that kind, of, that kind of talk, and they said, wait a second, you can't put those kind of parameters on the meaning of reah. They stressed it makes no difference whether an Israelite is virtuous or not. He or she, an Israelite, is one's brother or sister, part of one's tribe, part of one's family, one's comrade in arms, and therefore ought to be treated by a neighbor. But do you see the commonality between the two translations? It's still someone who's on the inside. It's just a question of whether it's a virtuous Israelite or just an Israelite. See, in the midst of all these different understandings, it's against this backdrop of these varying opinions, as well as the world in which Jesus lived, this world full like ours, of war, slavery, class, and ethnic distinctions, and discriminations of all kinds, the lawyer asks Jesus to weigh in as to the right definition, the proper understanding of reah, 
who is my neighbor? Which is it? Is my neighbor a fellow human being? Is a neighbor my friend? Is a neighbor a member of my ethnic national tribe? How will Jesus answer this controversial question? Now, whether people trace it back to Jesus or not, everyone knows the story he tells by way of his answer. It's what's known as the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus doesn't give it that title. We've given it that title. And even this title, it always bears repeating, and most of us probably learned this somewhere along the way, even this title that we've given this story back then would have been a contradiction in terms when Jesus first told it, because in the first century, Israel, the Samaritans and Jews were enemies to each other. There wasn't something good you could say about a Samaritan if you were a Jew. A good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. Get my drift? And yet Jesus deliberately frames this narrative in this way in order to shed light in the most provocative of ways for his time on who, who one's neighbor is. You know the story. A man is robbed. He's beaten, discarded on the long road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Interestingly, don't know if you ever caught this before, we are told nothing about this man's identity. We don't know his nationality, we don't know his ethnicity, we don't know his age, nothing. All Jesus describes is this man's condition. He has been attacked, abused, taken advantage of, left for dead, and is in desperate need of help. His present situation is so dire, we can imagine his wounds, his vulnerability, his vitality slowly ebbing away. This man's life hangs in the balance based upon what happens next. And what happens next? Two Jewish passers-by, first a priest and then a Levite, clearly see this man in the middle of the road, and yet both offer him no help whatsoever. The only shared reaction they take is to cross to the other side of the road in order to avoid being in close contact with him. The shocking and offensive nature of their decision is underscored by what happens next, and more importantly, who does what happens next. A Samaritan, let me give you this again, a Samaritan, someone the original hearers of this story might have assumed as being the kind of person who jumped this guy in the first place, not only sees this man, but we're told views him with compassion. More than just a goner, a potential contaminating corpse in the middle of the road, the Samaritan sees a person, a fellow human being. And what does this Samaritan do? Jesus describes, don't miss this, Jesus describes how this Samaritan, this foreigner, this outsider, this enemy, treats this man like a friend, like family, like one of his own. This Samaritan binds up this man's wounds with oil and wine, picks him up, and carries this man on his own beast of burden, brings him to an inn, and personally oversees this man's recovery. Even when the Samaritan's schedule demands he has to leave, he ensures the man's expenses are covered and that his healing will continue unabated. Jesus, as you know, then ends this story with a question. Which of these three do you think 
was a neighbor to this man. Notice that what seems like a rhetorical question invites a personal answer. The lawyer gets to decide to weigh in on his interpretation of what rea means, what a neighbor is. But despite centuries of competing interpretations as to this word, there's only one true and right answer here. And so he says, the one who had mercy. You've probably heard this before. Notice he doesn't say the Samaritan. He says the one who had mercy. Araya, a neighbor, is one who has mercy on another person. Araya, a neighbor, is one who does not withhold mercy because the other person is not a part of their tribe. Araya, a neighbor, is one who perceives not a stranger in the other person, but a fellow human being made in the image of God. Araya, a neighbor is one who shows mercy to another person by treating that person like one of their own, like family, and making that person a friend. There are four things we ought to notice here to just expand on what I just said. The first thing is Jesus' basic definition of Rhea, of who a neighbor is, is not really all that surprising or unexpected. I mean, some of us, oh my gosh, this story of what Jesus says here is so unheard of. It's not. Despite all the varying opinions among the lawyers, if one chooses to pay attention, Yahweh has been and remains quite clear that our neighbor is our fellow man or fellow woman. Think about it. From the moment Eve came alongside Adam, right into the aftermath of Cain's murderous rejection of Abel with his dismissive question, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord established we were created as neighbors to each other. Yahweh's first words to Abraham in initiating the building of a nation of Israel are God's, interestingly, same first words to Abraham's son Isaac and then later to Abraham's grandson and Isaac's son Jacob. Here it is. Your descendants' purpose is so that all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. In other words, Israel's very purpose and identity was to become neighbors to bring good, help, healing, hope, and life to all the people of the world. When Yahweh... Think about this. When Yahweh gave the law through Moses to the still emerging nation of Israel, the Lord's top 10 instructions for how to live as he intended, for how God created us to be, were not just given for one tribe or nation alone. They were given for all nations, for all the earth. For example, when the Ten Commandments declare, you shall not bear false witness against your Reah, was Israel, are we, Meant to understand that that rule of life is okay to break. It's not a problem to lie in a trial if the defendant is a foreigner. When another of the Ten Commandments says not to covet, covet your Rea's wife, should Israel, should we believe this means it's totally okay to covet an outsider's wife, say a Hittite's wife named Bathsheba, 
Or didn't Yahweh rebuke King David for just that sort of thing? No, of course not. I'm, I'm, I'm being, making a point here. God's word is clear despite all the hemming and hawing, despite all the looking for loopholes and exceptions and grounds for dismissal. Our neighbor is anyone regardless of skin color, nationality, ethnicity, gender, generation, immigration status, or creed. Anyone who has been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And that means, first point, for the follower of Jesus, no one is a stranger. No one is a stranger. Everyone is our neighbor. Now, some of you right now, you're there. I know you're there. Wow, so you're saying that we have the responsibility and the impact of helping everyone. Everybody's my neighbor. Follow me to the second thing Jesus clarifies about the meaning of rea. The nuance of the Hebrew word rea, the nuance of this word is one of proximity. What I mean is it's a spatial term as much as it's a spiritual one. This is actually reflected, and you'll see it come up on the screen, in the Greek translation of rea, which is the word plesios, the Greek word plesios. Plesios, which means neighbor, derives from pelas, which means near or close to. In other words, who specifically is my neighbor? Anyone God brings near to or close to us. So hear this. While we should view all of our fellow human beings as our neighbors and treat them accordingly, specifically, particularly, and practically, our neighbor is someone with whom we have daily contact. In other words, being a neighbor begins at home. After all, if we don't treat those right in front of us as our neighbors— why would we treat anyone outside of our daily routine, our normative reach, any differently or any better? Jesus' view of our neighbor begins on the street where we live, the places where we work and play, the roads we travel on between going from Jerusalem to Jericho in our lives. We're not required to search the world for qualifying neighbors. Get this. We're not required to search the world for qualifying neighbors. Yahweh is sovereign in this too. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, will lead and direct us toward others. The Holy Spirit brings people into our path and us into theirs. So if you're with me, my neighbor is the person who is under the same roof as me. My neighbor is the person who lives next door to me. My neighbor is the person who shares the same office space with me. My neighbor is the person I daily cross paths with in grabbing my morning coffee, in going to class, in commuting on the freeway, in dropping the kids off to school, in hitting the gym, in buying groceries at the local store, filling up my car at the gas station around the corner. And my neighbor, by the way, is the person sitting next to you in the same pew every Sunday morning. So again, point number two, recognizing our neighbor is about proximity. We don't need to search for our neighbor. 
We just have to be willing to see the neighbor right in front of us. This leads us to the third observation about how Jesus defines who our neighbor is. In this story and throughout the scriptures, don't miss this, Rhea never, never describes someone who is required to obey the law. Rhea never describes someone who is required to obey the law, who is required to share our beliefs, to share our values, share our faith. Rhea, my neighbor, is always someone who is treated according to the law. How the Lord calls me to act. How I understand how the Lord has treated me. You getting this? We're not allowed. We're not given license to restrict our neighbor to those who are just like us. We aren't given the prerogative, the wiggle room, to decide our neighbor must be someone who shares our politics, shares our nationality, shares our faith, shares our practices, or even is a morally upright person. If you stop for a second, that wasn't God and Christ's criteria for treating us as neighbors, was it? For while we were yet sinners, Jesus died, gave everything, all of himself for us. The only qualification for being a neighbor is proximity. Simply being in close contact with whomever the Lord puts in the middle of the road upon which we are traveling. And just in case we miss it here, just in case we want to debate this, Jesus repeats this crucial point another way during the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember it? When Jesus says something that shocks us all. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's referring to rabbinical interpretation, right? Which we talked about. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Get ready for it. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Say, what? What? Not even those we deem or who deem themselves our enemies are outside the bounds of being considered our rea, our neighbor, according to Jesus. Point three, there are no pre-existing qualifications for someone being seen and treated as our neighbor. There are no pre-existing qualifications for someone being seen and shown mercy like Christ repeatedly shows us. This brings us to the fourth and final implication of Jesus' definition of rea, of neighbor. It's this. <laughs> the obligation of being a neighbor, the obligation of being a neighbor falls on the one who is able to act with compassion. The responsibility for being a neighbor does not fall on the person half dead lying in the middle of the street. The responsibility for being a neighbor does not fall on the one who is in need. The responsibility for being a neighbor, according to Jesus, rests with the one who sees another in need and is able to respond to that need. That's the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Pay attention. The lawyer, right, asks for a definition of the object of concern. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Did you catch this, that Jesus never answers this question? Jesus never answers this question. 
Instead, Jesus reframes the question to the subject who demonstrates concern. Jesus instead essentially asks the lawyer and us, will you be a neighbor? Will you be a neighbor? How will we act towards the one who has been brought near to us? Will we be a neighbor to them? Beloved, within the circles of relationships that the Lord has placed in our lives, think about those circles for a second. Within the circles of relationships the Lord has placed in our lives, being a neighbor means drawing near to those people around us, right in front of us, and specifically acting with compassion whenever and wherever we encounter someone in need. Being a neighbor to another person, our capacity to act is not about what we would like to be able to do. It's not about what we would like to be able to do. It's about doing the best we can with what we have been given by God. Do you hear that? It's not about what I wish I was able to do, but I can't. It's about doing the best we can with what God has given us. Interestingly, drawing near, that, that phrase, drawing near, right? Drawing near is an allusion to the Hebrew understanding of initiating a sacrifice, of giving an offering to the Lord. Biblically, you can look this up, to perform a sacrifice, to make an offering is considered to draw near to God. So follow this. To act like a neighbor, to draw near to another, is to be willing to make a sacrifice, to offer oneself to another person as our way of worshiping the Lord, as our way of expressing our love to God. Now, I gotta stop here for a second because if you get that, this helps us to understand the nuance of why Jesus takes Leviticus 19.18 Love that your neighbor is yourself and fuses it with the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now we can kind of understand how, why these two things are put together. Because think about it. Up till today, how we've talked about loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, okay? But how do we know what it means to love God with everything we are? How do we know what that is? I mean, the idea of loving God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength can be somewhat vague, right? How can I practically give to the Lord all of who I am, all that he has provided for, of me, all he created me to be? How do I give all that to God? I mean, how many prayers does that amount to? How many prayers do I have to make? How often should I pray? I mean, how many Bible studies do I have to have attended and how many books do I have to have under my belt? How much time spent on a Sunday morning in worship Will, will be enough to love the Lord your God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. How much given to charity? How, many, how much can I give to charity? How much can I donate to the church? You see, and this is how we think. I love God, so I pray. I love God, so I read my Bible. I love God, so I worship on Sunday. I love God, so I give money to people who need it. I love God, I give money to the church. But notice, this is not how Yahweh calls us to love him. Search your Bible. This is not how Yahweh calls us to love him. All of the above, in fact, prayer, reading my Bible, worshiping on Sunday, giving money in the offering, donating to charity. All of the above are, in fact, tools, practices for us to engage, not so we can love the Lord, but so that we can put ourselves in a place, in a space to realize and more deeply appreciate 
how he loves us. Do you hear that? It's not so we can love God, but so that we can appreciate how he loves us. Jesus, through this story, is offering us the most practical way to understand not only what loving God means, but what loving God looks like tangibly. For those of you who like application, man, I want it to be practical. I want it to be tangible. What's it all about? Jesus gives it to you as practically and as tangibly as he can. You want to love God? Love your neighbor. Want to love God? Love your neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor, notice the shape, not only go together, they are inseparably linked to each other. We can't claim to be practicing one without the other. Just ask the biblical prophets of old. The prophetic books, over and over again, this comes up, right? This is their repeated message to Israel. Do you remember it? God says, people, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Meaning, I don't need your rituals of worship. Those sacrifices are for your benefit, not mine. What I want is the sacrifice of your mercy. Your mercy, the sacrifice of your mercy expressed towards others. For you to reflect the mercy that I have shown to you. That's what I want. And it's not just the biblical prophets. Paul, Peter, James will say again and again and again, if you claim to love God, I don't care how much you pray, I don't care how well you know your Bible, I don't care how often you worship on a Sunday, I don't care how big your donation is in the offering plate. If you claim to love God, but do not love your neighbor, you're a liar. Not my words, theirs, you're a liar. You're kidding yourself. You're out of your mind. You're out of your heart. You're outside your soul. You're dead. You're a dead man walking. How do I gain eternal life? Jesus says, go and do likewise. Love your neighbor. You want to live? Love your neighbor. That's how you demonstrate that your reliance, your dependence is totally on God. That you're all in, sold out. That everything is about the Lord. Jesus, and everyone hates this story, right? Jesus <laughs> tells this other story, right? where he talks about the end of all things, when the time will come when God's going to make all things new, the kingdom is going to be fully realized, and people are all going to line up. You know what story I'm about to tell you, right? And everyone's going to show up, and Jesus is going to separate people. Some people are going to be sheep, and some people are going to be goats. Read that story. We don't like it. What's the difference between being a sheep and a goat? Loving your neighbor. But Jesus doesn't frame it that way in that story, right? He doesn't say it like that. He says, when you loved me, when you gave me a cup of cold water, when you visited me in prison, when you gave me the shirt off your back, when you helped me in my need, and the people go, the goats go, whoa, 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 whoa. When did we ever do that for you? When you did it for the least of these. Beloved, are you a sheep or are you a goat? It's not hard. You don't need Jesus to tell you. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Sheep follow the shepherd. And they love their neighbor out of their love for the shepherd. Goats, well, goats just chew everything up and leave it worse than they found it. Right? Four, just to repeat this last point, the responsibility for being a neighbor falls on the person who sees 
another person in need and has the capacity to act. Our love for God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is expressed. It is only expressed. It is definitively expressed through our love of others, our neighbors. So to whom are you a neighbor? That's that's where we're going to go, right? Who's your neighbor? Who's close at hand to you? Are you thinking about it? Have you been thinking about it? Who's close at hand to you? Who lives next door? Who shares your office? Who do you bump into all the time at the places you frequent? Who, get ready, do you still not know in this community, this church that you participate in week after week? And I know that some of you don't know other people who are in this room. And we're in the same room for more than an hour. Some of you get reintroduced (laughs) to each other on a regular basis. Remember where we started with this? Loving your neighbor starts at home. If we don't know each other, if we're not getting involved in each other's lives, I'm not talking about, you know, hovering or stalking, but if we're not neighbors to each other, how are we going to be neighbors to anyone outside these doors? Ask yourself that. If you sit here and you go, well, I've been going here for 50 plus years or 40 years, whatever it is, and you know, I've been here longer, so the burden is on them to get to know me. Good luck with that. Are you doing the same thing outside these doors? Well, I've been a part of this community when before when there was nothing here. So if someone wants to be a neighbor, they can come find me. And if you're someone who's younger who's like, hey, hey, I'm new here, and I'm waiting to see if anyone's going to come up to me, man, if anyone's going to actually engage me, good luck with that. Be a neighbor. Introduce yourself. Put yourself out there. It's a risk. And if you can't do it in here, if we can't practice it, and that's why we come together, if we can't be willing to fail and forgive each other and be neighbors to each other, come on, there's no way we're going to do that out there. There's no way. It's not going to happen, man. See, a lot of us, myself included, a lot of us practice what is called Christianity by proxy. You know, we make a one-time donation or contribution from afar. We check the box of doing a general, non-specific good deed without getting close to anyone. We remain distant, removed from the darkness and the dirt, the, path, the pain and the suffering of the brokenness that's around us. We know how to do this. We know how to insulate ourselves, to isolate ourselves, right? We limit our vision to what we are willing to see so that the limits of our compassion do not disturb the level of our comfort. We reduce Jesus' call to love our neighbor as ourself to something trite like, be nice. Be nice. Just be nice to everyone, and you've been a good neighbor. But being nice is nothing more than a facade, right? A way of avoiding the reality and depth of what's going on in another person's life. I'm great at being nice, but that doesn't mean I care. You know what I'm saying? I can be nice with the best of them. That doesn't mean I care. Being nice is just an easy excuse for disengaging from the people around us. You've heard me say this before. Hey, how you doing? Great. Oh, good. How you doing? Not so good. Oh, well, hope it gets better. See ya. Be praying for you. Being nice is not what Jesus calls us to. Proxy Christianity is a wonderful way to avoid the real world. And church, we got to stop doing proxy Christianity. Because Jesus hasn't called us to follow him by proxy. 
Jesus calls us to follow him by drawing near to someone he's put in our proximity. The people around you, right in front of you, our relationships that we have are ones that the Lord has placed before us. These people are our neighbors and we are called to know them. We are called to love them. We are called to show up and be present for and with them, especially when they're in need. Regardless of whether we like them, we are called to love them. The only condition is proximity. The only question we have to answer to be a neighbor is this. Do I have the capacity to help? And if so, will I? Will I? You know someone who truly understood what it means to be a neighbor? You'll see his picture on the next slide. was a man named Fred Rogers. I'm not usually one to give film, you know, encouragement from the pulpit, but I would encourage every single one of you to watch the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, that's about Fred Rogers. I cannot, I cannot beg you to watch it. Just do it for me. If you don't know Mr. Rogers, he was a Presbyterian minister who was given the capacity by the Lord to be a neighbor to generations of children and adults around the world through the medium of television. If you know anything about this guy, he wasn't wildly animated. He didn't have that charisma or celebrity pull that so many need, believe they need to have to possess or reach others. The guy every week, didn't matter if it was the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, or the next millennia, the guy always came out in a cardigan sweater that his mother made for him, by the way, and a pair of loafers. What Mr. Rogers offered was the gift of human connection. Week after week, through a low-budget living room set, we're not talking high-tech special effects, speaking slowly and with great deliberation, he affirmed again and again and again the uniqueness, the worth, and the individuality of each person. And at the same time, he imagined a kingdom-sized vision of this beautiful yet broken world where everyone would grow up knowing and believing they were worthy of dignity, respect, and love, as well as knowing and believing others were too. Looking directly into the camera, I don't know how many of you watched him, he treated each of his viewers like they were each his neighbor. He even sang a song each week inviting each of us to be one too. Won't you please, please, won't you be my neighbor? Now, when I share this with you, the one risk here is don't let the scope of the canvas of Mr. Rogers that he had to work on limit the possibility of yours. We don't all have to have, we don't all need a television show to be a good neighbor. Why I want you to watch this documentary why it's so critical for you to watch this is because what I want you to see, what I want you to hear from people in his life, people in the circles of his relationship, is that what stood out about Mr. Rogers, even more than that show, was that what he preached from that set, and he was a preacher, he lived with every day of his life. That's what we're called to do and to be. That's what I'm pointing to. 
Being a neighbor means recognizing we are neighbors to each other. Start there. Being a neighbor means being willing to see that my neighbor is the one who, by the Lord's leading, is in my proximity, right in front of me, without any other caveats or conditions. Being a neighbor is the obedience and the willingness to encounter someone the Holy Spirit has put in my path who is in need and to meet that need in whatever capacity the Lord has enabled me to do so. For to act with compassion towards another is to passionately love the Lord. To be there for the least of these is not just to be a neighbor to them, but to be a neighbor to God himself. The weight, the weight, and it's a good weight. It's a, it's, it's a burden that's easy and a yoke that's light. The weight of the glory of the kingdom of God moves us both to see and to enter into the opportunities right in front of us. Divine appointments, are you paying attention? Divine appointments to be neighbors to those the Lord has put in our path. And as every follower of Jesus chooses to act with compassion towards those in need, those who are close at hand, think about it. When every follower of Jesus chooses to act with compassion towards those in need, those who are close at hand, the whole body of Christ can and will reach everyone around the world one arm length at a time. When we go and do likewise, love Jesus by loving like Jesus, man, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Amen.